Hello, and welcome to the Movie Spotlight on the Comic Book Page Podcast. My name is John Mayer. In this episode, we'll have a spoiler-filled discussion about a movie we think you'll enjoy. In this episode, I am joined by my sister Kay for a spoiler-filled discussion on Star Trek Beyond. We've just finished watching it on Blu-ray. We also watched some of the uh, extras. And this was the third movie in the rebooted version um, of Star Trek. A new director this time, Justin Lin, who's known for some of the Fast and the Furious movies. And I believe he's also behind uh, the new MacGyver show. At least, yeah, he was... uh directed the pilot and has at least been involved yeah to some extent he was w- one of the people not the yeah. guy behind the macgyver stuff also they had uh simon Pegg write this along with another guy um and it had a little bit of a different flavor well let's start by sort of i don't want to say couching but positioning um two events larry nimoy died while it was being written yes which was reflected in the story yeah and then the actor uh, Anton Yelchin, who plays uh, Chekhov, he died, I want to say, right about the time it hit the theater. Definitely before it went to the DVD. I think it was literally like two or three days before like the premiere or something. Yeah, it was just one of those... It was a, a tragic accident where um, he was in his, his Jeep, Cherokee, I think it was Jeep something or other, had it you know, parked, I guess, on a hill, uh, opened the door to go get his mail or whatever. It Left rolled, the engine running. It, it rolled back and basically he got pinned between the, the mailbox and the car or whatever and, and killed, uh, as best I can recall. It was a little yeah. while ago. It well, was a, it was at like two o'clock in the morning, which adds to the, no matter how busy your street that you live on is, at two, in the, two o'clock in the morning, there are far less people likely to drive by, see what's happening, and be able to offer aid. I mean, it was a, a tragic accident, and I think it was also it being in park, but not parked, if you will, yeah. uh, was, I think, a known issue potentially with that car. Yeah. So, and I think he either had gotten the notice, well, like a couple of days after that, or, or you know, whatever. Yeah. It was a horrible, horrible tragedy. Uh, really a shame to lose uh, a very talented actor uh, at such a young age. Um, I mean, it was terrible to lose Leonard Nimoy, too, but he was at that age where it's like, you know, it was going to happen sooner or later. Uh, it doesn't make it any better, but it, you're at least in a different frame of mind for that versus... Well, and Leonard Nimoy had had the time to contribute so many great things to our entertainment library. Well, or... over the span of literally decades. Yeah. Whereas uh, Anton, uh, he was under 30. Yeah. He was just beginning to make his contributions, and they were good contributions. Yeah, these three films, uh, one of the Terminator films, he'd done a few other things. And so it was interesting, because one or two of the extras was around, you know, the passing of these guys, and just kind of how that had sort of impacted the the cast. Yeah. Um, And it it had to be a little bit of a kind of a... uh, a double whammy at least it was kind of spaced out a little yeah well one of the scenes i really enjoyed in this film was Chekhov and uh, kirk and they're walking through a forest having realized someone they trusted betrayed them mm-hmm. 
And Chekhov, you can just see he's been running it through his mind, trying to figure out when should I have figured out I was trusting someone I shouldn't have. So he asks the captain about, when did you realize? When did you understand that she wasn't? When did you suspect this person? Yeah. Yeah. And the captain's answer, I loved it. Not soon enough. It was fun because there were a lot of things that were happening in that scene that were, were went unstated but are very very easy and logical to read into the scene yeah and what i loved about that part of this film is this is a point where the the enterprise crew is kind of scattered to the winds and we get some pairings not all of which are the usual ones you would expect uh, bones and spock yeah that's that's pretty easy one to go with but with this crew, it would have been almost more logical for the writer to say, okay, it's going to be Spock and Uhura. Yes. It's going to be Bones and Kirk. It's going to be Chekhov and Sulu. And they didn't go that way. Yeah. Well, and Sulu and Uhura were an interesting pair up. Well, and I loved, again, Chekhov and Kirk. Yeah. Because you've got that experience. Well, again, they're three years into their five-year mission. So at this point, you could actually say Kirk is experienced. Uh, and then you still got Chekhov, who frankly has almost the exact same amount of experience as Kirk. But he realizes that he still has a lot to learn. And he's trying to figure out, are my instincts off? Am I not noticing things I yes. should be noticing? Am I so caught up in my specialty that I'm not getting the bigger picture that the captain is seeing? And he's trying to learn. And well, that's what makes him a great character. And that was one of the things I thought Anton really brought to the character of Chekhov in these movies is that sense of he may be really good at a few things, but there's so much more he should be good at. Yeah. And that constant striving yes. to better himself, to, uh, a little bit to prove himself, but, you know, in other ways, just to, to contribute as much as he can. Yeah. It was one that I questioned if the writers knew that this was going to be uh, the actor's last Star Trek film, uh, if he would have gotten a bigger role or more part, you know, whatever. I He got enough of the script to be well represented, not just, well, he was in there, but they saved a big role for next time or something. Mm. I didn't feel he got the short end of the script. He was certainly not one of the star characters. No, but for an ensemble piece, which this is, he was really well used. Everything that that character did felt natural was in character he was there for those moments you you were grateful to see him you were happy to see him he was in the franklin for the scene uh where spock is talking about the uh the amulet mm -hmm. that uhura has and that they can use that to find her and he he has his own subtle moments in the older members of the crew giving spock a piece of their mind about the, you know, you say you gave her a sentimental gift, but really you gave her a tracking device. Well, first you gave her something radioactive, like this is going to kill her. No, no, it's harmless. Oh, it's a tracking device. You low-jacked her, essentially. Yes. It was a great scene. Well, what I loved about that scene was at the end in the party for Kirk's birthday. Yes. We see Nyota with the necklace, none the wiser on all of this stuff. Yes. Talking to Spock. Bones is in the background just kind of looking. It's like, oh, so that's what that looks like. Yes, yes. And then Spock seeing Bones and Bones just, ah, I need some to be somewhere else. Yes. There's a sense of interplay between these characters, a sense of family with these characters, and just that whole birthday party scene 
plays on how in the older movies, you know, Bones would present Kirk the glasses, things like that, but it'd be more private type mm-hmm. setting. Here, they're they're embracing the the family of the ship aspect a lot more, and it, it plays well. It seems natural. I think that's why I liked the way they brought in the Jayla character and how they used her. Yeah, the only part of this film that I thought went counter to the family aspect was at the beginning when we're getting what I thought was a really good voiceover kind of Captain's Log thing. Clearly it was Captain's Log because somebody else listens to it later. And Kirk's going about how, you know, they're kind of just out here meandering, they're feeling lost, everything feels so episodic. Just kind of a a comment of, you know, we're in the third year of our our five-year mission as if they've done most of what's happened in the old series. But we get this shot of Kirk's closet. Yeah. Starfleet uniform, Starfleet uniform, Starfleet uniform, Starfleet uniform. And what I would have liked to have seen is in the very edge of that, that civilian attire to where it's kind of, you know, six days, seven days a week, but he's got this other one he never gets to wear. That's what he wants once in a while. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, clearly he's got it on the ship. He had it when he was in the Yorktown station. Now, in the old show, the Yorktown, I believe, was a ship on par with the Enterprise. I could be wrong about that. It's at least the kind of name they would have used. Here, it was a uh, super space station sort of a thing out Mm -hmm. on this edge of of the frontier. And it was really cool looking. It was a little... It was baffling at times when we navigated too fast. It was a little ridiculous in some respects, but it was also very cool. Because it was something that has almost a three-dimensional snowflake spidery web sort of out thing. uh, With a, a globe around it with a force field keeping atmosphere in but it's one of those the enterprise flies through this really large um uh uh, airlock sort of a thing much like it did in some of the old shows when it would go into this huge star base Mm -hmm. matter of fact i think in the third or fourth movie i think we'd seen stuff like that but the thing is they would fly in this case the yorktown station it would be this long tube into sort of like maybe the center or somewhere else but that tube on the outside had the cityscape aspect to it and gravity kind of jutting out in all directions. Mm-hmm. It was the gravity jutting out in all directions that was baffling me because I got that like there was a point that gravity kind of spiraled out from. That's the thing is I don't think that's the case. Yeah, it seemed like there must have been like eight of those points. I think each one of these spindles had its own gravity. Yeah, see... So inside of it, there's no gravity, but it has enough that on the outside it pulls you in. And clearly they've got artificial gravity in this universe. Yeah, it was just amazing. But it meant that you could look up the side of a tall building, see the top of the building, and see another one at like a 30 or 60 degree angle or something. And it looked like the the tops of the two buildings were maybe 100 feet apart. I mean, it just... Well, and the it was amazing. Was not clear at the beginning. There were places where you could see the Enterprise in this tube as it's going in. It reminded me of like the Dolphin tube in Sequest in that yes. ship. Yes, yes. Except it's like star uh, starship size. But there were places where I figured oh, it's just like a force field covering, or you know, uh, transparent aluminum, or you know, something. Something magically out, holding space away from people. Uh, it was water. Yeah. Because they dove through it at times. And I'm like, wow, that's... I mean, whoever came up with that design... The concept that water could effectively equalize and 
help you adjust from the non-atmosphere of outer space to the proper atmosphere of environment. I still question if it could, but if you've got artificial gravity or some such transporter, attractor beams or force fields or whatever to kind of hold it in place, and obviously not force field, well, even they could have shuttles go through force fields. Anyways, uh, it was... Amazing. It was brilliantly conceived, very well executed, uh, and it was uh, a lot of fun in that regard. And they, in the extras, were clearly referring to it as kind of a proxy for Earth because they wanted to put Earth in jeopardy. And there were times where it's like, okay, we're getting this shot of the the plaza, the water, etc. And I'm like, this this is this movie's version of Starfleet Academy's area, that cityscape, that future. Yeah, I was thinking that too. Um, so it. it it very much communicated what they wanted it to communicate. Yeah. Well, and their idea was the big bad of the film. And in fact, he had such a pronounced introduction that I actually asked you if we should dub him the big bad when he first came in. Um, crawl. Yes, Crawl. Uh, when I saw that guy, it wasn't uh, do we dub him the big bad? It's like, do we dub him Jakar? Because he looked so much like uh, the character of Jakar in Babylon 5, the Narn. And that was one of the things where I felt this movie, uh, I don't want to say fell flat, but the baggage I brought to it didn't help. Uh, the uh, the main alien race here that I don't know was ever clearly named, and he wasn't even part of the alien race is what, what gets me at the end, uh, but he looked so much like an iconic one of the four or five major races in Babylon 5. Yeah. It, it, it bothered it not bothered me but it, it seemed it pulled you out it seemed derivative yeah it's like i have seen this before well and their idea that crawl would use yorktown as kind of a test case of his weapon he tested on an individual now he's going to test it on this yorktown environment if the weapon does what he wants it to do then he's going to take it to earth mm -hmm. so it, it's another example of how the threat really is to earth even if we are so far removed from earth so they were trying to keep it relevant to the audience yeah. i'm not sure it had to be relevant to the audience I'm not sure a Star Trek audience needs the threat to be to them personally for them to feel the threat is real. Absolutely not. We've seen that in the past with uh, the Klingon homeworld being in jeopardy at one point and um, Vulcan in another movie. I mean, we've seen other other cases. What bothered me here was not only do you have this biological magical weapon from an uh, ancient race that's that's long since gone that. Uh, this guy just happens to, to magically figure out. But the other stuff this race left was really powerful mining equipment, which is essentially a swarm controllable set of ships. Uh, and the fact that it is mining technology, I'm going to get to in a second. But this, this reminded me of the ultimate universe Galactus, where it was a bunch of swarm ships. Mm. And it would just devour anything in its path much like this devoured the enterprise but the part i want to go back to on that is how for again the the mining equipment aspect of this didn't we just see that two movies ago with the romulan mining ship being what's able of just devastating a, a, yeah. a starship it's like it works it makes sense it's but it's it's it, it felt a little derivative i didn't I didn't understand Captain Edison. I needed more explanation. First off, I didn't recognize him as Idris Elba or whatever. Yeah, Idris Elba, yeah. Uh, sorry, yeah. 
when Uhura is going and, and playing back, because they find on the ship, or on the planet, the, um, what was the name of the Franklin. ship? Franklin. The Franklin. The captain of the Franklin from 100 plus years back, somehow, in addition to this magical mining stuff, they had technology to keep people alive. And it seemed to be something that, again, we never see any device do this, but he is able to, like, absorb a life force of other entities and take on aspects of their physiology. So by this point, he has been essentially feeding off of aliens of a particular race, so much so that he has effectively become one of them. And then after feeding off two or three or a handful of, of the Enterprise crew, suddenly he's back to looking like his old self from 100 years ago. And it this part of the story is where I felt the writers really fell down. Because they didn't explain any of this to any semblance. I mean, even if if you go with his his nutcase, I've got to get revenge on the Federation for not rescuing me, as acceptable. And, which I, I'm willing to go with that. Well, that and for suddenly becoming an organization of peace after needing me as a soldier, using me as a soldier, needing me to win wars. And when the wars are won, just putting me in a captain's chair and saying, go, go to the furthest reaches of space. We're done with you. Be peaceful. His beef was basically the Federation made them soft. Made them soft and then sent him out on a pointless mission to crash and be abandoned. So I, I get what his beef was. I'm not sure I share it, but I get it. Well, others clearly share his beef of the Federation being soft. Go back one movie. Yeah, yeah. Admiral Marcus. Yeah. We've lost our edge. So there's aspects of this film, while it was wildly entertaining. Oh, it and, was. And enjoyable, not highly original. And even if you can go with the logic of this character, and I'm willing to go with it, he's he feels he's been wronged. Mm-hmm. He was uh, a product of an earlier time that couldn't make that transition. Mm -hmm. It was kind of like if Kirk had happened half a century later at the beginning of Picard's time. Yeah. And you go from that cowboy captain to that diplomat captain. Some people wouldn't have made the change and Kirk probably would have been one of them who couldn't. Yeah. So right guy, and I'm talking classic Kirk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so right person at the right time versus right person at the wrong time. So. Let's say the the captain of the Franklin, he falls into that, fine, I'll give the motivation for the character. But the level of coincidence or convenience in the plot crashes, disappears in one quadrant of space, somehow magically shows up on a planet that happens to have technology to, to uh, preserve his life for an extended, for literally like a century or so, probably two. So for a crazy amount of time, technology that will allow him to devastate incoming starships uh, somehow magically tap into the uh, the Yorktown database, crack its encryption and all of that stuff undetectably. Yeah. And then also be the home planet of this magical uh, uh, bio biological weapon that's very much a miniature biological version of this big swarm, you know, mining equipment. Yeah. Were they mining biology? Well, clearly they were. That's how they extended their life. There was an aspect of this where I think about a 10, 15 minute, not necessarily one scene, but scattered around exposition or backstory or something could have, wow, this, I guess this does all make sense. But it wasn't, not only was it not there, it wasn't in the deleted scenes that we watched. Yes. Now, they never gave a reason why the woman we trusted was a double agent or whatever you want to phrase her as. Yeah, the one who gets okay. him into the whole mess. Why was she doing what she was doing? 
Now, going back to your, I wish there had been scenes that gave the exposition. If she had been doing what she was doing because she wanted access to whatever extends lives and they had used her and that opening to give us some of that information. Yeah. They had opportunities mm-hmm. to, to close what I felt were some of the inexplicable aspects of the plot. This was yet another movie, though, in which uh, the Enterprise crash lands. This time it reminded me very much of when Riker couldn't drive. Uh, I'm kidding. Riker had a good... Bones admitted he couldn't drive the alien ship and he did not know why anyone in their right mind would transport him onto one. I, when he was flying at the end in (laughs) Yorktown in the alien ship, I really wanted to, to, to have him yell, how do you stop this crazy thing? Yes. There was a Flintstones moment to be had there. Yes, yes. Or uh, Jetsons, actually. I loved it when Bones figured out that Spock suggested he get transported onto it. Oh, there was some some great moments for for Bones in this movie. Mm -hmm. Um, He was was very well used. There was a lot of very intentional callbacks to previous films, previous aspects of the character relationships and stuff, and... I felt that while it had a very high action quotient and a few things like that compared to the TV show, it very much captured the spirit mm-hmm. of Star Trek. And there were a lot of places where the the crew was was really touting the the strength and unity in diversity and things like that. Yeah, which I appreciated and have always enjoyed about Star Trek. Yeah, definitely. So again, there were some some really fun moments. Uh, the other alien they introduce later that uh, essentially becomes part of the team uh, really enjoyed uh, that, was, that character. That was Jayla, who Jayla. I mentioned earlier. And what I liked about Jayla was the way Scotty met her, brought her in, etc. He realized she's a loner, not necessarily by choice, mm-hmm. but she escaped alone. She's been surviving alone. She's lost people. But if we can show her what we have to offer, what a crew is, what a crew as family is. Yeah. This could be an amazing thing for her. And at the birthday party where somebody said, you know, if you drink, you'll take the edge off. And she's like, I still have my edge. Yeah, my edge is still on. Yeah. Yeah. But then he shows her that uh, Captain Kirk has arranged for her to go to Starfleet Academy and shows her the stuff. And that's what changes her feelings and attitude in that moment more than any alcohol could. Well, I really hope in the next film, because I know they are doing another one, that her character gets mentioned that ideally Scotty and Kirk are having some conversation and her name comes up as to how she's doing at the Academy or something like that. I can see them having her in the movie, especially... Depending how much time elapsed, True. Well, she can be as a uh, midshipman equivalent, you know, when you go to a military academy here, you go on midshipman cruises. I, I hate to say it, but she could be a replacement for Chekhov. Yeah. I mean, personally, what I want to see is, I mean, obviously, Anton's not coming back because of the, the accident or whatever. Um, but, you know, all of the things, I would have rather the accident didn't happen, he come back. But You want to see them fly with the chair empty? No. Um, what I want to see is in the animated series that Walter Koenig mm. was not in. They had A-Rex or something. I forget the character's name. It was a very alien character that had three arms, three legs. Now, we're in the day and age where you could actually do a CG character. Mm-hmm. 
Now, we've seen it done multiple times before, or you could do it the old puppeteering manner. There are ways they could make the character work in live action. Yeah. And if really the only time you see him is when he's at that console uh, flying the ship or something, that would just be kind of cool. That would be. That would be. Um, but it would take a bit of work, and I don't know that they're going to go that way. To me, that's a nice way to honor the the passing of, of the character, or the actor, I mean, to have the character off one another ship, the Reliant, whatever, um, but also to pay tribute to the history of Star Trek with the animated feature, uh, series and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but failing that, I think she would be a, a fun character because she seemed like somebody Scotty would definitely be kind of taking under his wing. Yeah. Much as like he had done with um, the, uh, the short engineer one. I never know his name. I can't remember his name. And I... He was well used. He was well used, but one of the deleted scenes, I wish they had kept... Where he sneezed. Yeah. Well, it's funny because in the scene where uh, Bones is is doing the bartending for Kirk... And he mentions... mentions that... The cold, and Scotty's afraid he's going to sneeze on something in engineering, but because we have no understanding of what happens when he sneezes. Yeah. Again, there are a few things like that that they could have set up a little better. Uh, the two deleted scenes they had, that was the tail end of one of them. Um, the rest of that scene was, was not needed, but it would have been fine to keep in. Uh, the other one basically explained how Scotty got a, uh, a, a jacket at one point, which you didn't need to, to know because it's like, well, he's on this old Starfleet ship. Surely they've got provisions. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the look of the Franklin, by the way. I really liked the look of it. I loved the fact that Jayla called it her home, her house. Mm-hmm. You know, take my house into space, make my house fly. You broke my house. Mm-hmm. What, again, that was fun. It really showed her engineering chops. Yes. She was a good foil for, for Scotty. Um, I really wanted to have the Admiral at the Yorktown station after it's all said and done with uh, talking with Kirk, with, there's just one thing I don't understand, Captain. You flew out of here <laughs> in whatever class ship, the Enterprise. You came back. <laughs> yes, yes. In a derelict antique from a century ago. Now, granted, <laughs> this solves a number of unanswered, previously unanswered questions, but it raises a few others. Yes, it does. With kind of Kirk doing, I can explain. Yeah. You know, kind of the... Almost at this point, it's got to be expected from the Admiralty that the inexplicable will happen with this guy, and he'll actually be able to to explain it. Yeah. It may seem a little ludicrous, because it is, but it's true. Yeah. Um, so that would have that would have been a little bit of fun. It, when they're taking off in that ship, going after uh, the Krull, the bad guy, whatever his name is. Yeah, Krull. Um, I was sitting there wondering, he still has that, that swarm stuff you got toasted in a much more powerful ship how 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 is this gonna work yeah you're doing good to get this off the planet yeah um, but again it was fun it played well um there was a very good sense of both cinematography of action uh, of direction not a single lens flare that i spotted i was thinking that too there were a few times early on when they're in the nebula where i'm like you know, in all the past movies, I am getting literally blinded at times on the bridge. Here, I can... It's, it's dramatic shadows. It's... Yeah. Here, it was gorgeous. 
Well, it was gorgeous, but it also was like the lights had kicked off on the bridge. Mm, yeah. It was it was overly dramatic. Well, at the end when the swarm, for lack of a better term, realizes they're in deep trouble and things start going wrong for them. Mm-hmm. Seeing that wave of the swarm mm. suddenly getting cut down, that was just beautiful effects seeing it from inside the yorktown was gorgeous the way the swarm worked was was beautiful again reminded me of some stuff i'd seen from the comics not as in they'd taken it directly from there but very similar sort of um those thing it was also similar to the annihilation wave so there are a couple of things that if you've read some of the uh the marvel comics over the last decade or two Mm -hmm. you could have been inspired by that uh, but I thought they, they executed on it particularly well when they had that aspect of, of almost like the cresting wave as it's coming towards the Enterprise to both, you know, come at them straight, but also engulf them from the top. And they've figured out how to, to block the signal in a destructive way. And it's almost like they're lighting the thing on fire as they fly by it. Yeah. They get to the point where they're shooting down. It, it was almost like a surfing movie. Yeah. Yeah. So there was some some real brilliance, I think, on the directing. Yeah. Um, I think there were aspects of the writing that facilitated a number of these things. Yeah. But there were a couple of things here and there that, as much as I loved, it's like I wanted just a line or two to, to what exactly is going on here? Yeah. When Kirk and Chekhov trip one of the the, the traps Jayla mm-hmm. set, uh, set up, they get stuck in this goo or whatever. And she's got something to kind of degooify it or whatever. It's like, okay, that's cool. We see what it does. So when he's using that during the breakout, yeah, got it. I'm good. Yeah. However, when she shows up to essentially rescue Scotty and there's this tech stuff that makes it seem like there's three of her, but there aren't. Yeah. Are they holograms? Are they not? Just a simple line from Scotty. Oh, well, you did this. Yes. Especially since that got used later. Yes. In they set up infinity. It being it, they set up the capability of it, but didn't explain what we were seeing mm-hmm. or how it was controlled. Yes, because when you think about what Kirk was doing later, that was pretty complex. It looked like floating hologram emitters of some sort, but again, it how would they have programmed for Kirk? It yeah, there were parts of that that is just I'm 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 a little confused. Not in a bad, throwing me out of the story, you've got to be kidding me way, but in a, you've got a clever idea here, I want to know more yeah. kind of a way. Yeah. So, again, the um, the movie, by and large, I thought was a lot of fun. Uh, the set designs, uh, I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Um, they had some great locations for the uh, alien plant. Yeah, both the locations uh, for the planet, the look of the ships, uh, the, the again, the Yorktown, um, the... That whole aspect of the film really worked for me. And those are the sorts of things I really enjoy about the Star Trek universe. Now, I will admit, I try to avoid spoilers like crazy, but there was one that was impossible to avoid. And because I heard so much about it, I expected it to be a much bigger aspect of the story than it was. Sulu, private life. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't... It was never a point of discussion or conversation or dialogue. It really was maybe background in three scenes, if that may. 
if it hadn't been discussed that he was in a same-sex marriage. I think a lot of audience members would have missed it, quite frankly. I think so, too. It was clear he has a daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a guy who's there with the daughter going to see him mm-hmm. that could have, I mean, with the, the way they walk away, I don't think people would have taken as, oh, they're brothers or whatever. So I think people would have picked up on it. But really, that was the extent of it. But I think people who are uncomfortable with a same-sex marriage would have chosen to read something different into it. Whether they would have chosen to read, wow, that's his good buddy who's been taking care of his kid and is so happy to see him doing well after three years on the ship. Again, good buddy, brother, whatever. Yeah, know, I, I think people who didn't want to see a same-sex marriage would have chosen to read something they're comfortable with into it if they hadn't been told in advance what to see. Yeah, I would have not told people what, what was going on there and let them read or not read into it what they wanted to. Because mm-hmm. it doesn't get in the way of the story at all. Uh, the guy shows up later with the daughter, but it's one of those, if you don't recognize him at the time, it's fine. Turns out the guy co-writer mm-hmm. well and i totally agree with the comment that we saw in one of the specials afterwards of sulu's daughter being on yorktown gives him an extra investment in the safety of yorktown and i would take that further to say given how tight that bridge crew is given how tight most of that crew is they all cared about yorktown yorktown in the abstract but also about sulu's daughter I would agree with that, but I don't know that they needed the personal connection. Agreed. To me, that almost undercuts the heroism of the act. That's very true. That's very true. And Star Trek was always about that amazing idealism. The good of the many, whoever they might be. The the movie, the, the mission starts out with somebody needing help and they're going to rescue a crew. And they, they don't... They, they start as the heroes. And they don't know what species this crew is. They know nothing about them other than they need help. Somebody has asked for help. They will help. Yes. You know, so that to me was enough. Yeah, that right there, that is Star Trek. Um, I don't think having a personal connection to the the Yorktown. They were trying to up the stakes. It didn't up it or or lower it or whatever. It just, it was something that wasn't needed, but also didn't detract. Okay. And I, I always get a little frustrated when they feel they've got to have a personal stake in things. Yeah, I'll agree with it, that. For it to matter. I was surprised how low-key and low-impact, I mean, it was such a minor, I don't want to say backstage thing, but Sulu's relationship, I couldn't understand why it had gotten so much conversation. Yeah, I think it was more that it was talked about that... Uh, than the actual scene itself because i agree with simon Pegg's comment in the extra that for a franchise that's so all-inclusive and stuff like that to have had nobody none of the lead characters in that sort of a same-sex relationship just seemed a little odd but he was also very much trying to make it as something that's just an aspect of the character it's not Mm -hmm. a defining aspect of the character yeah and i don't think it was disrespectful to either the character of Sulu or George Takei, who played the character previously. Although I know he was a little... uh, He was, by my understanding, he was both frustrated and disappointed that they altered Gene Roddenberry's vision and didn't respect that when he had that vision, he was trying to do something that the masses would accept and embrace so that he could get as many people present 
to hear the messages he wanted to share. My interpretation of Takei's unhappiness was that was not what what, uh, Roddenberry wanted to do with that character. Not that it was the wrong thing to do with the character or whatever, but when he had brought it up to Roddenberry, Roddenberry had said, no, let's let's not go there. And for the time and the place and the situation, I think that that was a logical choice. Mm -hmm. Likewise, I think for the time and the place, this was a logical choice. And it was something that I think Simon Pegg had intended to do in honor of of George Takei and to to kind of further that whole same-sex equality, uh, marriage equality and stuff. And it didn't violate any kind of continuity I'm aware of in the movies and stuff for Sulu. We know he has a daughter. True. That's all we know about his family. True. And again, it's not like they made a big to-do about it or uh, even verbally mentioned it. It's literally, you see a guy bringing yeah. a, a young girl that, because he'd had the photo on the de- uh, the console, presumably is his daughter. Yeah. Um, I thought it was done... In a minimalist manner, I thought it was done tastefully, respectfully, and certainly, like I said, did not detract from the movie at all. The fact that it got so much discussion, I think, really was a matter of it being completely blown out of proportion. Yeah, that's how I'm feeling. And I like the inclusive nature of Star Trek. Mm -hmm. We've had handicapped characters, we've had aliens, we've had multiple different nationalities, and some iterations of Star Trek have embraced that diversity more than others. And I've found, that by and large, the ones that embrace it the most often tend to be the most enjoyable. Yeah. It allows you to bring in vastly different viewpoints, and not in a disagreeing viewpoints kind of a manner, but just somebody looking at the problem from a different perspective. Yeah. And I certainly hope with the upcoming Star Trek Discovery that we get that. Yeah. You know, I really want to see, you know, the six or seven people you'd have as the stars in the ensemble, those characters coming at a problem and each of them kind of coming at it from such different perspectives that you've almost surrounded the problem. Mm-hmm. And that's the unity and the strength that crew has. Yeah. And that's something that, you know, in Next Generation, you had the logical viewpoint of data, you had the, uh, the Klingon pragmatic warrior viewpoint of, of Worf. Mm-hmm. You had the empathic uh, Beta Z viewpoint. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you get enough of these different things that you, you've got your bases covered. Yeah. So. Well, Jordi LaForge was always interesting in the way he saw things very differently because of his blindness. Sometimes they played that up. Other times they didn't. Yeah. And that was, I think, a missed opportunity, partially because of the technology at the time. True. I think if they were to redo that character with today's capabilities, there would be a bit more of uh, uh undercurrent of really feeling that he sees things differently. Yeah. You know, because in in through his visor, the whole concept of skin color and race would either be completely gone or completely magnified. Mm-hmm. For even people who look to be of the same ethnicity, different heat patterns, different whatever. Yeah. You know, so there's a, a lot you could do there. Um, but really, I think there was only once or twice we even saw what he saw. But again, uh, late 80s. Yeah. You know, we're 30 years later, so we could do a lot more now. But that's that's part of the fun stuff uh, with with this crew is, you know, we, we've got a couple of aliens on the ship. We... Sometimes use them well. Sometimes they're just there for convenience. Um, but I want to see more Star Trek. 
Yeah. You know, I'm looking forward to another film, looking forward to the TV show, um, looking forward to reading the uh, the relaunched IDW comic. They had done one series to 60 issues, which was a lot of fun, ending on a great two-parter that had this crew interacting with the other crew. Oh, interesting. They were in kind of two different timelines, and there was a subspace anomaly where they kind of intersect. So you've got the Chris Pine Kirk kind of waking up on the other Kirk ship and vice versa. Hmm. And it's just, it, it, it was a great comparison, uh, compare and contrast to the two crews. How the two Spocks say the same thing, but a little bit different. Not quite a mirror universe, but close. Um, sort of. It was one of those things where it's it's more of parallel universes, but not quite. Yeah. You know? And because the same things are happening to the two crews, but they come from such different perspectives. You had this Sulu. It's like, why did my, my console turn into a bunch of Christmas lights? <laughs> you know, sort of a thing. And the other Scotty coming to this thing, it's like, how come everything is like transparent glass? Where are the console? You know. Yes, yes. And just kind of poking a little fun at the design decisions of the team. Yeah. So that's where that series ended. The next one takes place after this movie. So I haven't read those two issues I've got yet. Because you have self-restraint and waited for your sister to watch the movie. Well, I had a feeling this was going to end up with the destruction of the Enterprise and uh, uh, 1701A, mm. and that the new series was going to start in the A, and this way I know. Yeah, makes I like, sense. like to follow the story in logical order if I can. So this was uh, one we didn't catch in the theaters. It was just a busy summer, and sometimes it's hard to find the, uh, the time to make it out to the theater when the movie's playing and stuff. Not just while it's in the theater, but literally, what time does it play? When can mm. we get dinner? When do we have time to record after? That sort of thing. It's it's a bit of a pain. Yeah. We've got many other movies we didn't watch over the summer to catch up on, but I'm glad we caught this one. It's a good film. Yeah. Um. So that's about all I got. Does it for me. Cool. The show notes and forum for this podcast can be found at www.comicbookpage.com under the podcast and forum sections of the website. Please email us at theguys at comicbookpage.com and let us know what you think of what was discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening. <laughs>